News Talk Breakfast with Kira Kelly and Shane Coleman. In association with AIR on News Talk. I wish I was normal like you. A casual comment made by a particularly slim friend of author and journalist Hadley Freeman when she was just 14 years old that would become the trigger that sent Hadley down a long road battling with an eating disorder. And this story she details in her new book, Good Girls, A Story and Study of Anorexia. And Hadley joins us now. Hadley, I'll be very straight with you. I've I've read lots of things about eating disorders and listening to your inner voice describing it was as close to really hearing someone's thought. It was like listening to my own thoughts. You, you write incredibly well and incredibly personally in a way it's 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 extremely authentic or true or something I found it affecting and profoundly so oh thank you it's incredibly kind of you thank you so much tell tell me when you look back now at that time that the throwaway remark I wish I was normal like you. We often hear about people with eating disorders being triggered by somebody saying that they're fat or that they're overweight or they're they're a fine strapping girl or some such thing. <laughs> your, your comment was 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 pretty mild and benign. Yeah, very much so. And it's funny, you know, people do think of triggers like that, like the ones you've listed. But when I would talk to the girls and women I was in hospital with all those years ago, the triggers weren't necessarily like that. You know, in one case. Um, it was someone telling a friend of mine that she needed to look after her father and brothers now that their mother had died. And she, in her mind, she took that to mean as, I can't look after myself, I just need to look after them. Um, another one, it, you know, she got a bout of food poisoning. And from that, she then told herself she couldn't eat food because it would make her sick. So it's not necessarily about weight. Like, people always associate anorexia in particular with wanting to be thin and, um, you know, wanting to look like a model. But it's not like that. It, it's something much deeper. It's something more about wanting to either stop time or to punish oneself, something more along those lines. So hearing, you know, someone say that I looked normal, to me that felt like they were saying I I looked like nothing. There was nothing special about me. Um, That's how it went in my brain. And and then I stopped eating because I felt like I was not special. That's really interesting what you said, that it isn't always about weight. I got Mm. got a sense from what I was reading about you that some of it is that thing about stopping time, about not going from girlhood to womanhood, mm. that you were putting mm. the brakes on that in some way? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, anorexia, almost invariably, uh, for, for women and girls, it, you know, obviously men and boys do suffer from it too, but it is it's the vast majority of sufferers are female. Um, and it almost always kicks in around puberty and adolescence. And uh, there is a lot of fear of womanhood. Uh, in behind it, a fear of leaving childhood behind, a fear of what being a woman means, being sexualized, you know, one's own sexuality, leaving one's mother behind or becoming one's mother. There are a lot of things involved with anorexia, you know, behind the behind the curtain, so to speak, of anorexia that have absolutely nothing to do with weight. It's it's a much bigger issue than that. Would it be fair to say that some of it is is about control? That you're controlling one aspect of your life in in a, in a, in a in an incredibly obsessive and and dominating all other aspects of your life kind of way, but but that exertion of control is is a way of a, a poor way perhaps, but of managing anxieties in general or 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 other aspects of your life. Is is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's a lot like an OCD. I mean, it certainly was for me. When you feel the you know the rest of the world or your life is beyond your control or out of control, 
you have this one thing you can control. You know, with an OCD, it might be, you know, that can be expressed in lots of different ways, whether that's hand washing or, mm-hmm. or tapping things or something like that. That's something you can control. With anorexia, there's something you can control. You're not eating. You're controlling your body and you're controlling not necessarily your appetite because the truth is you still have an appetite, but you're controlling what, how you respond to that appetite. Yeah, and that was a very good point you made. Was that it, it wasn't about having no appetite, anorexia nervosa? The idea that you've lost, you, you that you were always hungry, but, and, but, yeah, but that yeah. You, yeah, I mean, anorexics will say they're not because there's a huge amount of shame around appetite and hunger for almost all anorexics. But of course, they're hungry; like they're not eating, um, and that's why the thinking kind of gets out of control because their brain is so confused with how hungry they are. And then when they get below a certain weight, their brain isn't functioning properly. Okay. So that's shame. Is that like you don't want to admit that you're hungry and not eating, so you just say you're not hungry because yeah. to, to admit yeah, that yeah. you're hungry and not eating, it, it's hard I mean, to justify. Is, is that the shame? It, no, the shame is the sense of greed. So, you know, you don't, I mean, that, this is how it was for me. I, like, I, you know, I am wary of speaking for all anorexics. Sure. It's certainly common among all the anorexics, the many anorexics I've, I've known in my life and known, knew in hospital was a huge amount of shame about greed and appetite. And the idea that you are hungry, that would suggest you want food. And that, that in itself is shameful. So for me, anorexia was about showing I had no appetite. You know, I had no sexual desire. I had no desire for food. I didn't need anyone. I pushed everyone away. I was just my own self-contained little island. And that, and that, that felt, I got a sense of pride of that. When I would come out of hospital, I was in hospital nine different times over three years. I had this huge shame because I obviously wasn't as skinny as I was before because I'd been refed in hospital. And I felt everyone could see on me, oh, she's been eating. And that to me was okay. as, you know, shameful as, you know, people might find now, you know, masturbation to, you know, online pornography or something. That to me was how shameful it was, the idea that I'd responded to this physical desire, this physical need for food. I, I thought it was very interesting you were speaking about the, your qualms about writing the book but you, in terms of shame, that admitting, you know, because you're, you're a successful person, you've written other books, you're a well-known com- columnist in the UK and The Guardian uh, previously uh, and now in The Times. And, and so you're, you're somebody who has, has a, a, a reputation and you, you, even now, even as an adult, you worried that talking about this might might damage it. Is that the stigma and the shame that still exists around eating disorders? Um, well, I think my embarrassment about writing it was, um, and, and uh, maybe this that was part of it. I felt a sort of shame of just writing about myself. Um, that just seemed, I, I, you know, I told myself for years not to write about this because it just seemed incredibly self-indulgent, you know, to be yet another journalist writing constantly about themselves. You know, there's so much going on in the world. Um, and there was also this, you know, you, you do think, God, do I really need everyone to know that I spent, you know, my formative years on psychiatric wards? Like, is this something we need to talk about still? Um, but eventually I thought, yeah, I sort of had come across enough girls who I knew through their mothers who are still suffering from eating yes. disorders. And I thought, actually, you know what, maybe the fact that I have recovered fully, maybe that is a helpful story. And maybe this can make people feel less lonely because when you are in the grip of an eating disorder, you really do feel all alone, that no one can reach you. And I thought, well, this might be a book that hopefully can reach some people in, in, those, in that depth of feeling. Can I just say as someone who's read it, you don't come across remotely as self-indulgent. You actually come across <laughs> as very much telling it warts and all. And <laughs> not, not that's what I mean. Your, your voice is very unfiltered. You, you don't try and... <laughs> 
make yourself sound like, well, I was, at, you know, there, there's no evidence of, well, Hadley actually secretly was really cool and talented. and like, There's none of that. It's, it's like Hadley was lost and Hadley didn't feel she had any friends and she'd come from America and she like she felt like a fish out of water. Like it's, it's, the honesty is almost painful, Hadley. I, I read it and I had enormous empathy for, for teenage you. I mean, I, I don't oh. think it's remotely self-indulgent. Well, that's very kind of you. I, I've sort of realized the older I've got that, you know, shame comes from a feeling of being uniquely bad or uniquely disgusting. And what I've realized is I'm not that special. And if I've gone through something, chances are other people have gone through it. I mean, that's that's why I put in, in the book, you know, an episode that might seem quite shameful, which is when I was at school when I was eight years old and I was caught in the toilet by a teacher and I didn't know what I was doing, but I was masturbating because I was so ang- I was such an anxious kid, and that's how a lot of anxious kids calm themselves down. And this was an episode of my life that had caused me so much shame for decades. And eventually, I realized in my forties, actually, you know, a lot of kids do that, and there's a lot of adults out there walking around feeling this sense of shame. And maybe if I talk about it, that can help take away the shame and stigma from some people. So it's an extraordinary. <laughs> it's an, no, no, I, and I read that 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 episode too, and I thought this is extraordinary that somebody is saying this. <laughs> because, because, no, but, but as I say, it was as close to really being inside somebody else's head as I, I think I've ever had uh, oh. in, in reading somebody's book. Just before we, we move on, just you mentioned splitting and the idea of, of the well Hadley and the ill, the eating disordered Hadley and how they were kind of vying with each other. I suspect that a lot of people with eating disorders will know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's very strange when you start with the, you know, the disordered eating behavior, whether it's, you know, bulimia with, you know, binging and throwing up or the anorexia not eating. There's a part of you that is still you and you're watching yourself thinking, wow, I can't believe this is like, what am I doing? And you remember how you used to behave, you know, come home from school and eat a snack and watch TV and not think anything about it. And now suddenly you're counting every single calorie and gram of fat in your head. And slowly these two parts of you, the sick self and the, and the well self, sort of separate a little bit and they're sort of fighting, like you say. And eventually for me, the the sick self just took over. There was no well self for a very long time. You speak about being fully recovered. That's the story that will give people great hope for a start because obviously Mm. we have a lot of people with eating disorders. But, Mm. but, But just for people who are on that road or indeed have maybe a, a daughter on that road, yeah. talk about what works because it's often a very long road of of, of relapsing and, and nothing seeming to work and people losing yeah. hope. So so how did you come out of it and, 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 and I, I suppose well Hadley reassert herself? Uh, well, for me, the most important thing was the whole time I was in hospital, I, I kept up with my schoolwork. So I first went in when I was 14 and I left when I was 17. And doctors were telling patients at that time, this was in the mid-90s, you know, that girls had to drop out of school to recovery. And I refused to do that. And fortunately, I had a therapist at the time who agreed with me. So that was the most fortunate thing was that I always kept a foot in the outside world. And so I always tell parents when they ask me what to do with their daughters to make sure she still has some life in the outside world. Don't collude with her in letting her believe that anorexia is the world. She needs to know what her friends are doing. She needs to know what she would be doing if she wasn't ill. And when people ask me, what should I say to my friend when I go visit her in hospital? I say, you know, ask her about the book she's reading and, you know, you know what nurses she likes. That's fine. But also tell her what you're doing, what school trips you've been on, you know, the boys you've met at parties. Like, let her know the real world is still out there. And she won't like it. The anorexia itself will be trying to fight that away. 
but she needs to know there's a world still going on out there. That those to me are that that's the most important thing for me. And if you were giving advice to, I mean, I think you're you're a mum yourself now, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, parents are often feel very helpless in these situations. Yeah. If you were giving advice to them about how they would approach it. Obviously, that's a very good bit of insight about, I suppose it creates a curiosity too in somebody that they are in hospital or, or, or in therapy yeah. that they were like, oh, I may not want to hear about this, but I'm kind of interested about what's yeah. going on. But but in terms of advising parents who, who might feel helpless and overwhelmed? Yeah, well, so the most important thing for parents, first of all, I just want to say to all the parents, particularly mothers out there who feel this most deeply, it's not your fault. Like, you know, of course, parents feel that way, but it, it is not your fault. Um, and the second thing is get professional help. Um, I know it is so hard now and there are waiting lists of weeks and months and stuff. And, you know, while, you're, while your daughter is on the waiting list, obviously you have to look after her and try to get her to eat, and keep her alive as much as possible. But I'm a really strong believer in trying to separate the parent role from the carer role as much as possible for for mainly the parent's sake, to be honest, but also for the daughter's sake. Um, you don't want your relationship with your daughter to just be about fighting with food. You know, get doctors to help you with that, get nurses to help you with that as much as possible. And it's been really interesting since the book came out. I've had quite a few messages and uh, letters from girls currently going through this. And Every single one has highlighted that bit of the book saying thank you for saying that parents shouldn't be carers. I think this is something that a lot of anorexics find hard to articulate, um, but it, it, you need to maintain your mother-daughter relationship with her and not become a nurse-patient relationship. Okay. Look, thank you very much for speaking to us. The book is called Good Girls. It's a story and study of anorexia by Hadley Freedom Freeman. It is one of the most unfiltered, honest accounts I think I've ever read of anyone going through anything. And is it really impressive, Hadley? And I'm sure for anyone who is affected by that, uh, them or family members, it would be enormously helpful to them. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Oh, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And if you have been affected by the issues raised in this interview, you can contact the Bodywise helpline on 012107906. News Talk Breakfast with Kira Kelly and Shane Coleman. In association with AIR. Weekday mornings at 7 on News Talk.